Blitz is defined as a sudden, savage attack. It is indeed all this. The effect is sure. The premise is simple. It's a basic, primal confrontation, man to man. No excuses are offered. None accepted. Welcome to the latest edition of Longhorn Blitz with Horns247.com. Looks like a radio station. Now, here are your hosts, lifetime Longhorn Rod Babers. Pure athlete, yeah. I transcend race, hombre. Matt Butler. I don't talk <laughs> man. I back it up. And we are sock full of that, man. right. And Jeff Howe. It's still real to me, damn it. <laughs> and that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold sets up. If you're going to blitz, come strong, but don't come at all. Coming strong with another edition of Longhorn Blitz with Horns 24-7. I am Jeff Howe. Wherever you're listening, however you're listening, we thank you so much for being a part of another presentation of the Longhorn Blitz podcast. You can get this podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. Just search Horns 24-7. Click that follow button. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review. Let me bring in the rest of the team. He is the master of the soundboard, the drop machine extraordinaire, our lead research analyst on Longhorn Blitz, and a daily fantasy guru. He is Matt Butler. How are you, sir? Doing pretty well, man. How about you? Playoffs treating you well? I'm good. Oh, playoffs were not not the best week. Uh, I guess it started off well Saturday. Sunday, not so much. No no Debo Samuel on the uh, No teams. Debo man that game that game was brutal. I I, I was one, I, you're a big, you know, Cowboys fan and 49ers and the just sort of the <laughs> nostalgic aspect of that matchup and then it was more of the modern Cowboys against the 49ers but it's still with some fun football. Life as a Cowboys fan since 1996 is Lucy pulling that football away from Charlie Brown at the last <laughs> minute. Nah, it's better than being a Texans fan. True. Shut up. <laughs> I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you. Or Oilers. Yeah, exactly. like, at least, at least you're in a position to where the football it was near. It would have been the league. Hank Hill's dream scenario back in 92 if the Oilers would have made it to that first one over the yeah. Bills. If they hadn't screwed up and blown that lead in Buffalo, but I digress. Uh, a man who knows all about the Houston Oilers, uh, Houston sports period. He he himself is a Houston sports legend. Don't let him tell you otherwise. Lifetime Longhorn, 2002 UT All-American, 2002 semifinalist for the Jim Thorpe Award. Fourth-round draft choice of the New York Giants back in 2003. Spent his NFL career with the Giants, Lions, Bears, Bucks, Broncos, and a year with the Hamilton Tiger Cats of the CFL. When he was done with football, he got himself back to Austin, Texas, and the 40 Acres, where he earned his degree Whenever that T-ring comes back in, we will make sure he wears it proudly. Nevertheless, he is a card-carrying member of DBU, and when you get that All-American honor recognized by the NCAA, they make sure you get one of those black cards. Number 21 in your program, number one in your hearts, Mr. Rod Babers. Thank you for the intro, brother, as always. Rod B., quick NFL tangent. Uh, it, it ties into Texas. Oh, yeah. I think what the NFL playoffs has reinforced are there are, is really one thing that's one thing that ties, two things that tie into each other make that makes one thing evident in football at the elite levels of football. Mm-hmm. We talked about this a little bit last week when we were talking about the national championship game. Um, if you don't have elite quarterback play, can adequately protect said elite quarterback, and you don't have a defensive front capable of getting to the other team's quarterback with some level of consistency, you got no shot. The Cowboys-Niners game and that Cardinals-Rams game, much like the Georgia-Alabama game, were glaring examples or glowing examples, however you want to look at it, of when you get to the elite levels of football, you damn well better be buttoned up along the offensive line because if you're not, 
you will get exposed in a hurry. Yeah. Well, even mm-hmm. the good offensive lines, right? The Cowboys, you look at it, I know Cowboys fans will dis- disagree, but they're graded out as as one of the better offensive lines. Yeah. You just look at the grades. I think the Cowboys' issues are when they face elite competition, and to me that goes back to coaching scheme, game plan, because if you do have the players, and I think everybody agrees Cowboys have the players, um, and you do, you you talked about the lines of scrimmage, right? Cowboys, when you put their pass rushers together, I mean, they're supposed to be able to rush the passer with the best of them. Demarcus Lawrence, Randy Gregory, Michael Parsons as an mm-hmm. edge rusher is one of the best in the league, mm-hmm. right? Even like a Diggy Zua for his position. Yeah, exactly. He's playing well. So, boom, they got that. They got the offensive line. So, what's the, what's the issue? I mean, Dak Prescott isn't playing at an elite level, but is that goes back to Dak having a ceiling, or is that the, the scheme has now limited Dak, or are you not building and crafting the scheme around what Dak does very well? So, it's, there's a lot of questions with the Cowboys. I don't. I don't even know where to start, uh, but I will say the Cowboys seem to have the raw materials. That's the frustration for Cowboys fans. And where you want to sort of add it all together because there's that added layer. Not only, yeah, you have have to have the line in scrimmage, and you almost always have to have elite to good quarterback play. But if you say maybe don't have the best quarterback play, but every other strength across the board, including coaching, including scheme, because we saw the big difference there with the 49ers in the same way that Georgia, you know, I mean, somehow you're able to do it with Stetson Bennett because everything else is elevated via scheme and across the board. So there's those two layers to where you have to marry it all together. And that's what you've seen, you know, bringing it back to Texas. There's always been one thing or another thing that's been a little bit diminished or not as good that you haven't been able to tie all three together. And when you tie all three together, that's what you can really end up finding that special team. Yeah. Yeah, and Matt, you got me where I was going with that. As I start looking back, and Rod, I know you're you're crunching tape right now, and I'm, I'm starting to look back at some things for Texas in 2021. What you said about the Cowboys – I think a lot of, and I, I thought this in the aftermath, and, and being a Cowboys fan, you just kind of go through, you know, the, all the stages of grief after a game like oh, that. Yeah. And I started kind of drawing the parallels between the Cowboys and Texas, and a lot of what you just said is a lot of what I was thinking about. You know, you look at the Texas quarterback situation. It's so okay. I mean, the, the best, the best quarterback play, the the closest thing Texas got to consistency at the quarterback position is when they had a healthy Casey Thompson. Mm-hmm. And but I think we can all agree Casey Thompson was not an elite quarterback. I, I and I contend, and I'm sure there will be people out there that disagree with me. Casey Thompson was never going to get you to an elite level at that position. Your your quarterback play was never going to be elite with Casey Thompson. It could be good. It could be good enough to win games. Yeah. But it was never going to be elite. Uh, so Casey Thompson, like you said, Rob, maybe with Dak Prescott at that level, maybe you're talking about a quarterback with a ceiling. We we know Casey Thompson's game had a has limitations. But And you start looking at the offensive line, and I'm just looking at football outsiders' numbers. And, you know, gosh, other than sack rate, which I'm looking, so sack rate, uh, the Texas offensive line, 90th nationally, standard down sack rate, 110th, yeah. passing down sack rate, 45th. So you're kind of, you know, middle of the road. You're, you're mm-hmm. average, maybe above average. But, uh, you know, this is how Rod, the eye test and the numbers can be deceiving. The Texas offensive line nationally, line yards per carry, 12th. Standard down line yards per carry, 7th. <laughs> Passing down line yards per carry, 45th. Opportunity rate, 17th. Power success rate, 43rd. Stuff rate allowed, 13th. Mm-hmm. Wow. Those numbers tell you, okay, if you knew nothing else, if you didn't watch a down of football this year and you're just looking at metrics, you'd say, man, the Texas offensive line was above average to maybe they were good in some areas. 
but us three and everybody listening to this watching that watched Texas this year that saw the eye test, what happened? Some of the same stuff I just described. When you face some defenses that had elite defensive fronts, mm-hmm. Arkansas, Baylor, Oklahoma State, Iowa, Iowa State, State, you got exposed yep. big time. Yep. Totally agree. And that's where like that whole, parallel. the whole analytics 100%. conversation when you look across the board and you'll hear a guy like Belichick, you know, really point out. He's like, yeah, I don't care what happened to a different team 40 years ago. It's all because situational takes precedent over the overarching analytics to where like those are large averages over, you know, 12 games and over hundreds of snaps can average out to where you're above average. But as you're pointing out in those pockets, in the pockets where you have to be a lead in against top tier opponents, you can be very, very bad. And it's still be not be necessarily impacting those season long means because when you look at volume over time, the way it averages out, you could be above average and still be very bad against those elite opponents. It just means you're really beating up on those lesser teams, which is which they did. The rice exactly. The and that's the statement <laughs> yeah. of the area Even where the offensive production against Kansas yeah. is still, you know, it, the production was really good. Yeah. yeah. It was the turnovers. The, the there, thing so. was, you needed to score fifty plus points to beat yeah. Kansas, and, and we talked about those glaring that. holes. Well, I mean, we had talked about Texas leading what it was. I, I forgot the exact numbers. I quoted them about a, a month ago, but Texas led the amount of snaps inside like the top ten to twelve in the country. But still, it's just those snaps that go bad are the ones that you're getting the worst returns. So those glaring holes and issues can be magnified. No, only Oklahoma State and Baylor led in more game time mm-hmm. in Big 12 play than Texas. Mm-hmm. And they were both in the Big 12 title. Texas was third in the Big 12 in game time spent with a lead. Mm-hmm. And yet, of course, five and seven was the result. So, And getting back to your point, though, also about Texas and you know how lopsided their formula was, mm-hmm. your defense was so bad, getting back to the Kansas game, right? Your defense was so bad at times, especially on third down when it didn't matter most, probably the most crucial uh, situation on defense, right? You were so bad in those situations that your offensive production oftentimes was overlooked, Mm -hmm. right? It was almost, you could say it was canceled out at times, no matter how explosive you were on offense. Your defense was so bad, allowing 6.1 yards per play that it really didn't matter. You would have to be not only elite offensively, you're talking about almost have to be uh, almost perfect in terms of efficiency offensively to cover up how bad your defense was. Yeah, and if you looked at Texas in the amount, the explosive play rate allowed in the most like 20-plus yards plays, 15-plus yard plays, Texas was always near the bottom. So it just shows that on those bad plays, yeah. your opponents are getting more than you, other teams in the rest exactly. of the country. Oh, I mean, I broke it down. I mean, when you just look at explosive plays, I mean, it, it, it's kind of just a microcosm of the Texas season. I mean, the Texas defense, you would get a team into – you know, the West Virginia game is the one that just stands yeah. out to me. There was one, there was like a second and 13 or whatever in the Arkansas game, but the West Virginia game, you know, they had that possession in the third quarter where they're getting Hudson Carter just come in. I think he'd thrown the touchdown to Xavier Worthy. They're back in the game, a game where they were terrible offensively in the yeah, first half. Still had again, no B. John Robinson. Uh, I think Ben Davis gets a sack and then Sweat gets a sack. It's oh, third, I remember that. Third and 18. I remember that. You're about to get off the field. You've got it going. And then you give up a 20 yard completion on that. third and 18. Yeah. On <laughs> third like, and 18. Yeah. Like and you're you, like, what the hell? You put yourself in a perfect <laughs> position. It's the. Matt, I don't know if you've got percentages on to-go distances and what amounts, but third and 18 is a pretty damn low percentage conversion now. I mean, uh, I don't exactly. I did the numbers on third and long period, and I believe third and long, you're around 20 
20 to 25 percent. That's that's usually kind of the average. You're on like seven plus on if that. If you're run? on third, yeah, third and seven plus, because I did it when I was looking at that after that West Virginia game, Texas allowed six of ten third and long, third and seven plus conversions in that West Virginia game. And you're talking about, like you said, it was 10, 15, 18, just ridiculous. So I think often a lot of these strides that were made offensively were overlooked because you couldn't help but notice how bad the defense was. And although that kept you, your offense kept you in games, your defense also allowed other teams to stay in games with you. That sliding it never allowed you to pull away. Right. That sliding scale is how you get to five and seven because you, even if you look at the raw numbers, and we, we've talked about this for years, like raw numbers, if you start looking at that, it can be a slippery mm-hmm. slope. But, Rod, it paints the picture. Scoring offense nationally, Texas was 18th in the country. They were top 20 in the country mm-hmm. in scoring offense. Here's the problem. You were 99th in scoring defense. Yeah. You're exactly. scoring 35.2, giving up 31-1. There you go. Uh, third, down, third down conversion rate, 31st nationally. You're 43.8%. That's, That's exactly where any OC would want to be. Third down defense, 101st, giving up 41.9. Exactly. You know, uh, red zone offense. Texas was a really good red zone offense. Fourth in the country, 93.6% scoring rate. Red zone defense, 91st. Exactly. You were, you, were as, you were as bad on defense as you were good on offense. And I'm, honestly, you, you probably overachieved on offense considering what we know about the offensive line, what we know about the wide receiver depth issues. You know, you probably may, may have overachieved, honestly. But X-Man was a true freshman that, you know, ascended to elite level of play. Um, you know, Bijan is Bijan. And Bijan with those numbers, too, you gave earlier, mm-hmm. that helps, too. I mean, how many broken tackles that guy had yeah. behind the line of scrimmage. And, and, Matt, you'll appreciate this. I mean, Texas was kind of like 2003, 2004, Dirk Nowitzki. Like, well, he averaged 25 a game. I'm like, yeah, but the guy you're guarding just scored 30. Lost, so <laughs> exactly. Didn't, didn't really matter. Hey, man, Dirk made it look good, though. I love I love Dirk, but uh, Dirk, Dirk got much better. Or those early years, Dirk, it was – well, it was fun to watch, but fun and frustrating at the same time. Kind of like Texas this year. It was, some parts of it were fun, some forgettable, First and, and a lot of it frustrating. But that's that's the thing, though, Rod. When you uh, the Cowboys Texas parallel, like I think we can all agree, even though the Cowboys have issues, they were good enough. I mean, they beat up on the bad teams. They played a lot of bad teams on their schedule. Yeah, they play in the NFC East. But you look at those raw yeah. pieces, like we just talked about, a Dak Prescott and a Mark Cooper. I mean, that that's a receiver group, even without Michael Gallup. Cedric Wilson had a hell of a year. Yeah, he did. You still got CeeDee Lamb. Mm-hmm. Dalton Schultz kind of had a, a breakout year this year at that tight end position. Uh, your offensive line throughout the year wasn't terrible. They just got exposed against really good defensive lines. But you, we talk about the pieces on defense. The Cowboys had the raw tools to be good enough to get to this point, to put themselves in a position to maybe contend for a Super Bowl, even with all their issues. I agree. And I'm not saying Texas was in a position to compete for a national championship, but Texas was good enough to have to be blowing out Oklahoma in the first half, to have themselves in a position late in the first half to step on Oklahoma State's throat and choke them out, mm-hmm. to have a halftime lead over Baylor. Yep. And, and you kind of took Baylor's best shot, weathered the storm, and you had some momentum in that game. Uh, there were a, a lot of – they got themselves as bad as they played in the first half against Kansas, got themselves in a position to win the game at the end. And you, even if you they would have won the game in overtime, you still say, okay, you avoided disaster, at least you won the game. They put themselves in a position. That's the frustrating thing. They, they There are times where when it clicked, and we just gave the stats on the, num- the t- amount of time where they had the lead in Big 12 games. Mm-hmm. When everything clicked for Texas, it looked really good. The frustrating part was – your inability to finish. And I think this goes back to 
And, and I kind of want to – we talked a little bit about the Texas defense last week, and this is kind of where I want to go as we start looking at the 22. And, and this is also – this also fits into the Gary Patterson thing because Gary Patterson had that come-to-Jesus season, you know, after 2013 when he decided, look, yep. defensively we're as good as anybody. We, if we want to compete in this league, we, we got to have offense. Got to embrace it. Embrace the spread. Does, does Sark need to do that in 22 and just say, you know what, we just kind of need to be one of those – what now would be considered a bizarro world Big 12 offense, one of those throwback Art Bryles, Baylor teams, or the Gary Patterson TCU team, or some of those Mike Gundy Oklahoma State teams, or you know what, we're going to figure out a couple of things we can do defensively, but we know we're going to have to score 35, 40 points every time out to win ball games, And um, you literally have to be an all-gas, no-breaks offense. That's no. what Texas was this past year. No, I said, it, I said it this past season. I said, you know, Sark needs to become – he he was too moderate in his approach. Remember, he kept saying, "We're gonna we're gonna try to play complimentary football, complimentary football, complimentary football." And it's like, Sark, you're not watching the games. Like, you need to rewatch the games. You can't play complimentary football. Mm-hmm. Your defense isn't good enough. Yeah. All right, you cut. You try to go complimentary football. Your defense is gonna let you down every time, and you're gonna lose the game, and sometimes lose them late and close because your defense will let you down. They just cannot hold up. So, what you need to think about your defense is it's found money. And I said he needs to become an extremist. He was too moderate in his approach that, you know what, I'm going to go out there and win with complimentary football. Yes, your special teams was good. We liked your special teams, one of the best special teams units in the country this year, and your offense was as well. So that's what you should have been trying to win with. And you should have said, you know what, not saying you're forsaking the defense, but you can't rely on the defense. You need to save the defense. And he kept, in my opinion, Tripp trying to rely on three, kind of three phases of the game to win in a complimentary fashion. And Sark should have realized much after that Oklahoma game, honestly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He probably should start to realize, all right, my defense ain't going to hold up. Even though there were some performances, some halves, right? Iowa State, you had a decent half for your defense. You know, uh, I think Oklahoma State, your defense held up for, what, two-plus two quarters a little bit. So your defense had its stretches, but you should have thought of that as found money, not something that helped you go win a game. Your identity should have been offense. Like you said, all gas, no breaks. You should have been essentially, hell, what's a uh, fast and the fierce? They have what they call the NOS. You should have been with the <laughs> NOS, dude, all the damn time. You should have been hitting the gas constantly, and I don't think he had that approach. I think he had the approach of, oh, I'm putting my defense in a favorable position. Man, it doesn't matter if your defense had 80 yards behind him or 20 yards behind him. They're giving it up. Mm-hmm. They're giving it up. 6.1 yards per play on the season, tied for the most yards per play allowed by a Texas defense in the history of the program. Figure it out, bro. Your defense can't hold up, and you shouldn't have been trying to play complimentary football. That's where he messed up, and I agree. He should have been more focused on, you know what, the offense is going to win us games, not the defense. And he didn't figure that out to way too late. The Oklahoma yeah. game, should, to your point, the Oklahoma game should have been the lesson. It should have been the lesson. Because when you look at how they played it, I talked about this when we talked about 12, and I, I'll get into some 12 personnel discussion as we talk about Jaleel Billingsley. We'll talk about that uh, in this podcast as well. But you, you look at how Texas ran the ball in the first half of the Oklahoma game. I love the split zone. I love that concept. Uh, and, and they ran the ball effectively. And then they just kind of tried to line up in 12 personnel and mash Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, Alex Grinch is going for broke. He's like, we're just going to try to create as many negative plays as possible, get them behind the chains, get them to third and long, because it's like that staff realized, like, that is our only shot to mm-hmm. get back into this game. Yep. And Sark Lincoln didn't, started gambling more. Sark didn't really adjust. They just mm-hmm. kept trying to salt the game away. And then when he figured it out, it was kind of too late. Oklahoma was already back in the game at that point. Agreed. Yep. That should have been, been the lesson. Yep. 
Yeah, and if you look at the metrics, you know, we were talking about it at the time, but how the Big 12 had sort of evolved to the point where you have, like, teams like Oklahoma State performing like almost a a Big 10 team where you're a top-five defense in the country, but you're 67th best offense. And that's one thing where, you mentioned, Texas had reverted to the old-school ways. Look where Texas finished the year, right next to Texas Tech. If you look at Hmm. uh, Bill Conley's ratings, it was the 32nd best offense for Texas, Texas Tech 36. Defense? Texas was 89th in the country. Texas Tech was 83rd. Wow. And that shows that even a more magnified offense. You were four spots better on offense, six worse on defense. Now, Oklahoma was the only sort of successful version. Now, when Texas played Oklahoma, these numbers were quite similar. But Oklahoma finished as the sixth best offense with 62nd best defense. Those are really the only teams in the conference where your offense was so much better than your bad to average defense, which Oklahoma finished with. Earlier in the year, Oklahoma wasn't performing that high but even k-state it was the 44th best offense but a top 20 defense mm-hmm. they were 18th baylor 16th best yeah. defense at top so they can play complimentary football and, yes yeah. and that's where the big 10 <laughs> yeah. and how exactly. we talked all season long about yeah. the big 12 sort of evolving into what the big 10 plays where you have all these teams like iowa finished here with like what the 100th best offense but they're a top five defense and Penn State, all these teams were like that. And Texas had sort of been the one that back in the day played the defense, but now had devolved into this, you know, decade old Big 12 team. And it's sort of like I call this like the Ole Miss of the of the Big 12 because Ole Miss was like the only team in the SEC that played that. We had a lead offense and they profiled like an old Big 12 offense where you have a average to below average defense and not being able to notice that was sort of the magnifying issue and it was like you said Jeff it was that Texas Oklahoma game where that also that seemed like the injury to Casey happened and your offense isn't able to perform at as high of a level when especially when say what you believe to be because you have these great skill guys a good offense but now it's going to be a deteriorated version of it the self-scouting being able to identify your strengths and weaknesses your defense isn't good now the upside of your offense maybe isn't there you got to notice those things and adjust yeah. i mean that's your job as a coach right that's my mm-hmm. my one of my biggest criticisms of sark this past year was that he would take his foot off the gas yeah. in the second half all the cheat codes that mm-hmm. i've identified within the sark offense and talked about for like a year now mm-hmm. all those different things the pre-snap motions and shifts your your play action pass rates, uh, your targets to motion, uh, bunch formations, all those little things, those little tiny things that gave you a significant advantage because you would compile and combine all those cheat codes. I wouldn't track it. I wouldn't track it during the losing streak. For the mm-hmm. most part, he, he basically decreased all those cheat codes from the first half to the second half. So when they got those big leads, he was throwing a ton of different cheat codes, a ton of different uh, different concepts at the defense, giving them more to digest. And in the second half, he is the one that got less aggressive. And he, he admitted, admitted it. And he admitted as such yeah. later on. So that is him further not being able to recognize what you are as a as a team, what your identity is, and then he should have doubled down on that offense. You should have had more cheat codes in the second half. You should mm-hmm. have had more concepts you were throwing at him in the second half. Instead of less, you were trying to hold on the lead. So all gas, no breaks, not true. Not true, Sark. Not yeah. true. And yeah. you didn't hear that until the last half of the year either. You didn't. I'm that glad was the, that's all you heard yeah. at the front. Yeah. I, I know there. In the Gary Patterson hire, as we sit here right now, is still not official. And, and I would caution anybody if you're expecting, you know, some kind of press conference or something announcing this. Uh, don't. I would not hold my breath on that. I, I think they'll. They, I don't even know if they're going to put out a press release on it. I imagine they would. Really? But, well, 
But I think that's part of the catch for Gary Patterson taking the job is he doesn't have to deal with the media or any of the stuff that he had to deal with being a head coach. He can just kind of kind of do what he's done for the last week, which is just hang out in the football office and talk ball and crunch tape and all that fun stuff. I guess the media can. I mean, you have it's a public university, so. You can you always find out if they just yeah. officially hire him yeah. and they don't tell anybody. You can do you know a yeah, he's, request. He's been he's been on campus for about the last week working with. The so staff. he might be already hurt. Yeah, because I mean, it really I, would be the first time to have a PC for an analyst, also or whatever his position. We don't even know the name of it, but it seems special, like special assistant to the head coach. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, Dwight Schrute. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So I'm the I'm the assistant head. No, you're the special assistant. Special Ooh. assistant to the head coach. Head coach. And we yeah, I, I I think they're going to avoid. I think you're right. I think they're going to avoid announcing it because they don't want us to ask those questions about, all right, well, what does PK it? answer to you or do you answer to PK? Uh, are you – is Sark your only boss? Like who – what's what's your responsibilities? All that kind of stuff. What and do he doesn't do want to talk about that stuff. Yeah. And I don't think Sark wants him people to know about that kind of stuff. Probably not. No, uh, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I think people are hoping Gary Patterson does for this program. And, I, you know, one thing, but getting back to what we just talked about, one thing I hope that, that GP and Sark can sit down and he can kind of tell Sark, look, I, I had the mindset coming into this league too that I was going to play complimentary football and win with defense. And and for you, it doesn't work. And there's nothing there's nothing wrong with changing that style. Because mm-hmm. Gary Patterson didn't want a conference championship and damn near made the playoff. Yep. Yeah, and that's one thing uh, when I was going through these offenses, defenses, the other school that truly has devolved into this scenario, which makes me ask the questions. Now, last year might have just been a bad year for TCU, but TCU, I mean, they're the most Big 12 of the Big 12 teams. Their defense was way worse than Texas. It finished the country 111th, they were according bad. to S&P from Bill Conley. 44th best offense, though. So it profiled exactly like the things we were talking mm-hmm. about, but sort of also what's the problem already at Texas. Yeah. Uh, One other thing, so – We'll see if that conversation happens. I don't know that it will. I'm sure it does. There's a lot of stuff that comes up in conversation when coaches get to talking ball and getting to hanging out and hanging out in the football offices. But, uh, you know, this this role for Gary Patterson, again, I, I think it's more about, and again, this is a role he created at TCU, and Sark has, has gone for that role for him. I think for Gary Patterson, it's really about just getting back to who he is at his core as a ball coach, which is to help somebody play really good defense, evaluating talent, helping maybe develop some talent. Uh, doesn't really want I've, I, what I've been told by some TCU people. Doesn't really want to recruit at this point. Yeah, doesn't want to deal with. He wants to be an NFL coach essentially without going to the NFL. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you know, right. You want to sit in the film room, tell a coach, and then does he want to go coach the players on the field? Does he not want to do that either? No, he wants I'm, to be well, like the Will Muschamp was for Kirby Smart. Like Will yeah, just got I'm to told, sit back I'm, in that Georgia team. I'm told with this role, with this role, what I was told by again by TCU people based on the Jerry Kill experiment, he can do some on field coaching because he's going to have to if he's going to be a you know I always say the coaches are just problem solvers, right? You got to figure out creative solutions for very complex problems. Um, at every level of the program, if he's going to come in and help solve the problems on defense, which are you got no edge, all right, at all, because you cannot contain the edge. None. Yeah, the, <laughs> really, really, you are you are just wet toilet paper on the edges this year, all right. We can give you the pro football fo- focus numbers, but we don't want to bore you and upset you, all right. So you bound the edges. You're, you you got problems at, at off ball linebacker, 
which, which I got to tell you, that's something I think most programs are dealing with. Mm-hmm. But I think they're, they're trying to address it. But that's a complex issue. And also, your corners can't play the ball when it's in the air. That's, that's a big still one. Still been an issue, and that's been an issue for actually going on multiple years now with multiple staffs and coaches. So you got some problems on defense that need to be solved. He's a guy that's a problem solver, and him and PK can put their head together and maybe try to figure out a way to solve those problems, either with personnel or schematically to figure it out. And that's one of the things Sark said. He said, you know, with the pass rush specifically, mm-hmm. he said through scheme or personnel, they need to try to upgrade there. Yep. Uh, they try to upgrade with personnel. They try to get Drew Sanders, the Alabama transfer. He's since picked Arkansas. Uh, O'Shawn Mathis, the TCU transfer, is uh, he's going to finish the spring semester at TCU. He'll be at his school of choice this summer. Mm. Everything that we've heard at Horns 24-7 says it's going to be Texas most likely. He's going to he's gonna take some visits and do the whole thing of letting the process play out, all that stuff. But you got a kid from down the road at Manor, has a chance to come back home. Gary Patterson's on the Texas staff at Gary Patterson's the one that recruited him, believed in him, developed him. So, and I started, that would be a home run if you got him. And I started looking at I started looking at O'Shawn Mathis's numbers, and I think you know, again, I'll get to sacks overall here in a minute because we we know that slippery slope when you're. Well, I heard this. This is the numbers you gave on Light the Tower. Yeah. Oh man. When you're they looking at sacks, we'll, we'll, I cannot believe that. Yeah, His we'll rates get to, are out of this world. We'll get like to some of that. Elite. Uh, we'll get to some of that, but go back to. And I'm trying to pull this up on Pro Football Focus, but PFF is not cooperating. I promise, folks, I'm not an idiot. I just no. Sometimes it does that. No, they changed up their formatting. It's a little bit weird. Okay, (laughs) but I uh, no. You look at O'Shawn Mathis's numbers in 2020. Now the 21 numbers can be a little deceiving because similar to Texas. TCU got fewer chances. O'Shawn Mathis got fewer chances to get after the quarterback mm-hmm. because TCU was so just putrid defending the run. Yes, they were bad. When you're that easy to run against, when you're that easy to run against, it takes away your chances to rush the passer. Of course it does because nobody's dropping back to pass. Why work, script, why work harder when you can work smarter? Just hand yeah. it off. Game <laughs> script exactly. really Happened does affect Texas. stats because there's no re- if you're leading, opponents are going to be running, and if they're going to be successful, there's no reason to drop back like you said, so the pass rush rates are going to be down a ton. But I went back and looked at 2020. O'Shawn Mathis numbers. There we go. Thank you, PFF, for cooperating. O'Shawn <laughs> Mathis. And we remember the year Joseph Osai had in 20, right? Oh, yeah. All-American year. You know, O'Shawn Mathis and Joseph Osai. Osai in nine games, Mathis in 10. They had the exact same number of pressures, 33. Wow. Uh, Mathis had nine sacks. Osai had seven. Mm. Quarterback hits. Osai had nine. Mathis had seven. Wow. Both had 17 hurries. Uh, the PRP number is something pro football focus uses to I'm trying to find the definition is a formula that combines sacks, hits and hurries relative to how many times a player rushes the passer. The PRP rate for Joseph Osai in 2026.6 for O'Shawn Mathis 8.2. Win percentage basically how many times are uh, what is the percentage of time you're defeating a block one on one? O'Shawn Mathis 15.6, Joseph Osai 17.3. So pretty much in 2020 O'Shawn Mathis, at his best, gave the kind of production that Joseph Osai gave in an All-American. Yeah, I did not know that. And almost more impactful if you look at it because, like you said, he beat his man, Osai did, more times than Mathis did by one point something percent. Yet Mathis was able to have more 
pressures and his rate was higher. So he actually got more out of those times when he beat his man. And the percentages dropped this year again because TCU was just as a whole defensively wasn't very good. But, you know, it's going to be an interesting spring. Before I get to the spring, I do want to give those sack numbers that I looked up because I, I just – Oh, man. I couldn't believe them when I heard it. I was like, what? You know, I knew they were bad, but I didn't know Texas was sa- Sacks, Rod, are one of those deals. What do you hear coaches say? Well, yeah, it is, it is kind of one of those things where just be – just because you got the sack doesn't necessarily mean that you created, that you made the play or created yeah. the disruption mm. or the pressure. Yeah. You just, you may have just been the luck, you know, the lucky mofo that was in the right place at the right time. We've learned that now about sacks. It's very chaotic and sporadic. So on it's hard indi- to track. It's like pressure. individual stat. It's like pressures now has become more of a, a, a value yeah. stat mm-hmm. because now I can track how often you pressure the quarterback. And to have Matt, you hit him, have you hurried him? Have affect you the quarterback. A what does Sark always say? Affect the quarterback. Affect mm-hmm. the quarterback. And we did not affect the quarterback last year. And even then, I mean, O'Shawn Mathis, in terms of Big 12 edge defenders in creating pressures, in 12 games, so the percentages dropped for him. Uh, 30 pressures this past season. So, in, oh, yeah, in 33 games. in 2020? 30, 33 in 10 games in 2020. 30 total pressures in 12 games <laughs> this year. Still more than anybody on the Texas roster. <laughs> I'll take it. Alfred, Alfred Collins and DeMarvin Overshone were your co-leaders in pressures with 15. Half as many as Mathis had. Wow. Yeah. So take that for whatever it's worth. Mm-hmm. And o- O'Shawn Mathis, if you look at his raw numbers, he's only he only got credited with two and a half sacks, I think. PFF credits him with four. So again, they got their own tracking system, though. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I looked at sacks, and sacks generally aren't overrated statistic. Unless you're either really, really good or really, really bad, then they're probably not overrated. They're probably pretty indicative of how good or bad your pass rush is. I agree. Texas, sacks per game in 2021. Oh, man. 1.67 sacks per game. Mm. That is the lowest sack per game total since 1997. <laughs> 1.36. And ask any Texas fan about bad defenses. 97 is going to jump. Does it stand that, out? That stands out. That sticks out like a sword. Oh, this is right before it. Matt came. That, that is, is the 66-3 UCLA. Uh, that's the Bob, that's the Bobby Jack Wright defense okay. playing Aaron Humphrey. Mike linebacker. And <laughs> KD talks know. about that defense uh, all the time. I don't know what was going on. <laughs> I should hit up A-Hub about that, actually. <laughs> so go, before this season. Yeah, coach, I'll do it. Before this season, uh, Texas started tracking sacks as an official statistic in 1975. That's actually earlier than a lot of places. Yeah, yeah and NFL didn't do it till 82. Exactly. I was <laughs> saying, and you know, you know how wonky the records are. Oh, man. <laughs> Trust when in me. 1975, Texas lists their leading sacker as Tim Campbell, or Campbell's brother. Shout out. List him as their leading sack guy with 13 plus. Like if you look at the Texas record. Also, they just lost track at one said, point. Yeah, it just says 13 like, plus. So, we know it was at least 13. I stopped keeping track. So how many games they played back then? 12? They played. Uh, I'd have to look even, at it. Yeah, 70, 75. Oh, probably 10, huh? It's yeah, probably like it's 10. I think, I think that was a 12-game season. Is it 12 back? Right. If you count the ball yeah. Well, but both statistics didn't count back oh, then. Oh, yeah, good point. Okay. So, Man, 13 plus, that's, that's legit. No, okay. it's good. It's there good. Go. Um, so Texas started tracking sacks as an official statistic in 1975. Okay. Before this season, the lowest number of sacks for a sack leader at the University of Texas was four. Dwight Kirkpatrick did it in 96. Dusty Renfro did it in 97. Mm. 
And I want to say there was one of those years where Malik Jefferson, I think maybe in 17, had four. But that 17 defense, you had multiple uh, guys. Yeah, with, yeah, that was a yeah, that was yeah. A, that was a nice. Game. I think I think Malik had four that. Yeah, year, that defense is so opportunistic. They I mean, they haven't touched out none offensive touchdowns. They, they, they led the country in defensive right. touchdowns. Yeah, it was, yeah. Man, Gentlemen, we have a new leader, if you want to call it that, for the lowest sack total by a Texas sack leader. Since the school started recording statistics, the statistic back in 75, mm. Ben Davis with two and a half. Wow. And it's it was like by a, it was by a ways, too. So you went from four to two and a half. Man, two and a half. Two and a half. How do, I've not been tracking that. I guess I, it, it, I didn't realize that you said it on like the tower and it blew my mind. Yeah. I went I, back and looked and I was like, damn, we were that bad at getting to the quarterback. Yeah, man. And taking down the quarterback, I should say. But that makes sense, though, about the third and longs, right? How bad was Texas yep. at allowing third and longs? I think Texas allowed on third and longs. They were allowing on, almost at, at one point it was like 45% when I was tracking it. I think they ended the season probably closer to 40% or 39%. But, yeah, you can't rush the passer. Third, so third and third, 18 or third and 13 doesn't matter as much. No. It was like, no, I can still. That's what West Virginia figured out. They were like, no, no. Against Texas, the third and long doesn't matter as much because they can't get to Daigie, so he'll have time to get to the open receivers. Yeah, and just yep. to put a, a magnify what you're talking about, Jeff, you talked about the 2017 season and PFF had Jefferson with five, but Texas had seven players with more than yeah. two and a half sacks across the board. Oh, you had Puna yeah. with three, Roach with three, Hager, Ominahu, Wheeler, and Johnson with four, and nice. then Malik with five. I like that. Yeah. Good. Uh, just like we talked now again, this is where I said sometimes the the no, numbers can be deceiving, and you got to look at the eye test. Now, if you look at Football Outsiders, their defensive line statistics, it jives with what we saw with the eye test for the Texas defensive line. Yeah, yeah. Uh, line yards per carry, and this is all allowed since we're talking about defensive line statistics. Line yards per carry, 89th. Mm. Standard down line yards per carry, 98th. Mm. Passing down line yards per carry, 58th. Mm. Opportunity rate, 75th. Power success rate, 97th. Ooh. Stuff rate, 57th. Sack rate, 117th. Standard down sack rate, 119th. Passing down sack rate, 73rd. Yep. That's why it's taking so long for them to announce the Gary Patterson thing. He's like, y'all need to pay me more. They got a lot of <laughs> damn work to do because that is, ooh, that is some, those are putrid numbers. And yeah, man. I feel so bad because we, along with many others, held in Sark included, Told people the defensive line was going to be the strength of this. I defense. said it could be the elite one in the, the Big Twelve because OU and, I thought was down. And the crazy part about it, it still may have been the strength of a defense that allows six point yeah, one yards per play. Because I don't know if the linebacker, the linebackers, a strength. No, was no. was the secondary a strength? Hell, it still might end up being a strength. And it's like that's the strength of a really bad defense who allowed five point two yards per rush on the season. So yeah, which is by the way second most in the history of the program allowed by defense. Yes, and I don't want to be the, the cold blanket or however you say Wet the blanket. phrase, but have you looked at TCU's D line mm. numbers from last oh. year? Because they're way worse than Texas's. Yeah. Be a cold and wet blanket. Yeah, that's the main <laughs> thing. If you talk, look at Gary Patterson in the situation now, last year again, maybe just went awry there. But 123rd, oh. 127th, 106, 112, 73rd, 125th. If you look at sack rate 97th, you look at standard down sack rate 101, passing down sack rate 103. Mm. So. Hopefully that was just uh, you know a one year hey. blip in the radar. Otherwise, 
You're literally all the TCU. We talked about that TCU defense whenever Texas faced them, and he's like, no, Texas doesn't have a great defense, but TCU's is way worse. Texas is going to put up 50 on them. No, I I, I think where you are now, if you're Texas and you're Sark, you have to do something. Yes, you're going to upgrade personnel as much as you can, but because you didn't make any coaching changes on the defensive side of the ball, it's hard to justify not making any moves at all considering you had one of the worst defenses in the history of the program. Mm-hmm. No, not I mean, 6.1 yards Agreed. per play allowed. That's, that matches, that ties the, the most that defense has allowed on the 40 acres in the history of the program and 5.2 yards second most allowed by Texas defense in the history of the program. I mean, you got to do something. Yeah. And I, I agree. Hell, if I, I would have probably tried to bring back Jimmy Lake, but I don't know if they get along. Yeah. Remember, my biggest concern when PK got the job, I was like, I love the hire. I think it's going to be great. My one concern is, how does he match up his coverages yeah. with the fronts? Because mm-hmm. that was Jimmy Lake's job. And these days, it is the coverage that determines the front, not the front dictating the coverage, because this ain't 1985. And that's where Gary Patterson could be a fit. And that's where Gary Patterson could be a fit, because he could be just a coverage guy and then pairing it up with PK's fronts, because obviously Terry Joseph, being the pass game coordinator or whatever, that didn't really work out on the defensive side of the ball, because him and PK, to me, that was not synchronicity. You did not have a coordinated front with the coverages and the pressures. Yeah. It, just, it looked discombobulated half the time. I'm, I'm watching the film. Sometimes it doesn't even match up to me. I'm like, what the hell? How'd you go single high with that? You know, Makes no sense. <laughs> and that's where you go and look at the Maybe it's a coverage bust. Like maybe the players are screwing up. I don't know. I haven't talked to the coaches. We don't get to talk to the coaches. And we've said that <laughs> we wanted that old head, the old football mind to come in to be able to be that fixer. And if Gary Patterson's available, it's maybe, you know, worth the risk. It's just also I wouldn't feel good in my due diligence yep. if I didn't point out how bad that virgin was. And I wish, yep. you know, I wish you could see the Muschamp son go into the transfer portal and come and want to be in Austin where he spent a few years as a little kid. And Will Muschamp yeah. could be that type of guy the way he was for Kirby Smart's defense in this hey. exact same type of role. Listen, but get, that's, that's my dream. I'll give Sark credit because PK was probably his third or fourth choice. Yeah. Right, I think Muschamp was up there. Mm-hmm. I believe the uh, I don't know. Barry Odom might have been up Barry there. Odom Barry for Odom for sure. Odom for sure. There uh, were Dan, other Dan Lanning. Dan, that's what I'm saying. I think he might have been the third or fourth choice. So I'll just I'll give Star some credit about that. That he was like, all right, I'll maybe settled on people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I gotta, I was, anyway, I've so. slept since that coaching search. So I know, but I yeah, I, I can think about it. Uh, but you no, know, to to kind of wrap up and then look, we'll, we'll keep talking about the Gary Patterson thing. Like I said, I don't know when it's going to be officially announced, but he's on campus working with the staff just. Be assured of that. I feel like Gary Patterson fell into some of the stuff Mac did at the end. Mm-hmm. Like we we we've been doing the show long enough. We can go back and talk about Mac at the end, which Rod, you and I had our various run-ins mm-hmm. with with Mac oh, at yeah. the end. Uh, and I, I saw Mac. I've seen Mac since then, and the tenor and tone of the conversation was very different. Oh yeah, no, he's been gracious. Um, gracious after, but no, so but you look at Mac at the end, and I think we can all agree, and I, and and Mac. I don't know if he's come out and said it, but he's said as much. You, you see, he was so tunnel visioned on trying to fix it and win games that, man, a lot of stuff slipped through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it was a, a nuclear waste of a mess that Charlie Strong had to come in and clean up. Yep. I think that's kind of the same thing with Gary Patterson at TCU. I think he got to that point where you had that run that started with that 14 team, which, man, in the years I've been covering the Big 12, that might be the best Big 12 team I've ever seen in the 2014 TCU team. That's really good. And so you get there in 14, 
you know, 15, you, you, the, those two years with Trayvon Boykin, with the, the Kenny Hillier, you get back to the Big 12 championship game, and they never got back to that point. And I think in the, the struggle to try to climb back up the mountain, I think the, the defense at TCU is one of those things, man, I just think Gary Patterson let a lot of stuff slip through the cracks mm-hmm. that he probably sits back and looks at now and says, man, how the hell did I miss that? Yeah, and let's be honest, you know, being a head coach, which Sark, I'm sure, can, you know, attest to, it's a lot different in terms of all the different responsibilities, all the details that you have to watch and make sure you're keeping up with, as opposed to, no, my job is to do defense, to focus on defense. That's it. Look at time. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and honestly, I think that, you know, for Gary Patterson, that may be a little bit refreshing. Is he a football theorist? And when I say football theorist, I mean, are you constantly a student of the game? And uh, some coaches, they can be great coaches, but they're not football theorists because they don't evolve, right? Dan Quinn's a great football theorist, right? Mm-hmm. Dan Quinn, famous for his Legion of Boom, being the architect for the Legion of Boom, loved the, the cover three pattern match zone and because he had Earl Thomas and Richard Sherman and Cam Chancellor, all these really unique athletes, and learned how to use them. And then there was some concern coming with the Cowboys. Would he bring that old, antiquated approach mm-hmm. to the Cowboys, or did he evolve? And he actually did evolve. Mm-hmm. Turns out he had been trying to find hybrid players for a while. He was a big fan of positionless football and when Micah Parsons came up he was like this is this is almost perfect this is a football god all right giving me exactly what I want just a great football player where I can move all around the field and I can promote positionless football and he's done a great job of it he's Keanu, got a couple Keanu other guys Neal Neal's one of those guys yeah. DeMonte uh, Kazee was one of those guys he likes Jerron Curse because he lines up at tight end puts him in the box he believes and I, I've always said positionless football is the future of football it's Shano uh, Shano's a positionless football oh, yeah. guy all he did was take his dad recipe and add positionless football. That's why you got Kyle Juszczyk, who's a fullback, but he also plays H-back, and also you line him up in the slide, and he also plays tailback. And then I got Kittle, he's an H-back, but also a tight end, and I can put him in slide, I can do all these things with him. And I got Debo Samuel, who's a wide receiver, but he also is a wide receiver, but he's a running back when he gets the ball. Like, you got all these guys, they're yeah. positionless players. So mm-hmm. all he did was take Shanahan's, the initial, like Mike Shanahan's form, and say, I'm just going to add positionless football to it. And that, that, that's, that People don't realize that, but he's yeah. a football theorist in that way. So if you're a football theorist, you're a student at the game, you're studying the game, you're know where it's going and you can actually gain that advantage right you can actually start building your scheme and concepts with the future in mind and that's how you get ahead of the rest of the nfl because every it's a copycat league if you have an advantage everybody's gonna copy that advantage in like the next year and you're not gonna have that advantage for long but if you can predict the future yeah if you can predict the next concept that's gonna take over play chess when everybody else is playing checkers then you got it add a layer then to you what you're it. doing and everybody time. else will catch up sooner or later like they caught up to the legion of boom and 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 the cover three pattern match they'll catch up to it sooner or later but if you can figure out the next best thing, the next big thing before everybody else, that gives you advantage. That's what football theory can do for you. That's what Gary Patterson, if he's a football theorist, he's been studying the game. He wants to study the game. He wants to know where it's going. He wants to predict where it's going. If he's not, he's just an old school football coach, and his time is done. We don't know yeah, yet. A really big part of football theory, though, Rod, is putting your ego to the side. It is. Because oh, yeah. you've got to become a student of the game. Think about, I, I, I'm just continually fascinated by how John Haycock we talk about, oh, the inverted Tampa 2, this three-safety defense, it, it's mm-hmm. revolutionized how you play defense in college football. Already hopped up. People forget how John Haycock stumbled upon that. problem. It was a Thursday night, mm-hmm. Texas, Iowa State's yeah. playing Texas in mm-hmm. Ames, and that was kind of their, their third down defense. Yep. And they started using it as a base defense and said, you know what, and we're stopping them and this works. Why not just make this our base defense? He was solving mm-hmm. a problem. Most of the time, coaches come up with great concepts. They're just solving a problem, a day-to-day mm-hmm. problem, trying to figure out how to use a player, how to maximize a concept or a game plan, and they stumble upon it and they go, actually, 
this is mm-hmm. this is it. You think the West Coast offense was the West Coast offense while Bill Walsh was working on it? No, it wasn't. No. He was trying to solve problems. He was trying to figure out how to maximize different players and went, actually, this probably is the most efficient way for any quarterback to pass the football. Let's start working on this. And have we, have we referenced Virgil Carter more than any other exactly. Texas football podcast? He was trying to think Virgil <laughs> with the Cincinnati Bengals, right? Come on, man. Football theory is basically coaches trying to solve problems, but you've got to be a student of the game to do it because you've yeah. got to go back. you got to have that humility and go back to the drawing board and go, damn, what I miss? What I miss? I miss something. I miss mm-hmm. something. There's got to be a way to solve this problem, and that's when you get beautiful breakthroughs. It's where Hopefully we always will give one. like the, the compliments to a guy like Greg Davis and seeing Vince Young and identifying something to build and change he everything was he had done he was, he around was. him. Or yeah. like when I look at, you know, you always hear the, about the Belichick aspect all the way back to his defending the Thurman Thomas uh, Buffalo yeah. Bills. Hmm. But then like whenever it was a few years ago and taking on Lamar Jackson and him and, you know, the Chargers started to put six or seven DBs in these positionless aspect with yep. guys like Adrian Phillips there now at the exactly. forefront. And you look at at the time with Texas, I think in still back to the Texas USC days and the guy that never fit anything, Drew Kelson, except for he became the biggest piece to be able to add that speed and have it all that side to be able to tie those mm-hmm. together. And I know these are all tangents out of left and right field with theory, oh, but yeah. when you brought up uh, Shanahan, it made me think about with this past weekend, and you know, first you always had a guy like Mohamed Sanu that he's traded for. He had him at Atlanta. Belichick had him. He's a guy that was a quarterback in college and always is able to be able to throw one or two TD passes a year, and that's what Travis Kelsey did this past weekend for Andy Reid. When you have another guy, talk about positionless, you got these guys that everybody has a former quarterback that from the Edelmans and like you just see these different players mm-hmm. that become skill guys, but they're multi-skill set. And when you talk about that multi-skill set, you have to understand what the other positions on the field do. And it makes you understand running back and wide receiver roles and players are smart and can identify what they're up against. And just these type of things that tie all together when you talk about football theory and then not only the coaches, but having players that fit within it. Uh, real quick, I, when we talk about football theory and Gary Patterson and how he got ahead of the game, I kind of wonder at this point in Gary Patterson's career, and, you know, I know, Rod, you asked a question last week, and some people kind of, I don't want to say got on you, but were wondering, oh, are you guys stirring the pot asking, okay, is Gary Patterson, is he going to be PK's boss? Who's PK answering to? And I, that to me goes out, I, I'm I'm done. I've been having followed this program my whole life and covered it for a decade. I, I'm not putting blind faith or blind trust in any Texas coach to just figure it out. And just hope that everything's going to work. I, I, I want to know how things are going to be structured, how this is going to go. But I wonder with this role, and we'll, we'll close with this, I wonder in this role, could Gary Patterson kind of maybe be what Ernie Adams is to Bill Belichick be that for Sark? In other words, a guy you lean on like for personnel, you lean on not necessarily thinking about it being over the defense, but a guy because I think Gary Patterson, in terms of his his football theory, I think it's more personnel than scheme because he's been ahead of the curve on a lot of stuff in terms of looking at high school running backs and saying no, I can make him an edge rusher. This high school this this high school wide receiver, no, you know what. I like that body type. He's going to be a linebacker for me and be a really good it's one. It's true, but that was out of necessity because of the level of football that he was playing true. on. And, you know, I mean, he was looking at scholarships and what type of athlete they could get. At Texas, you get a different type of athlete. So football theory, 
like when I came up with the term, basically, you just have to make sure that in any situation, you're looking at yourself as a student of the game to help solve the problem because coaches are just problem solvers. So if you go in somewhere saying, I'm going to use the same formula and the same um, methodology that yeah. I use at TCU here in Texas, it don't work. It won't apply. It does not. I got you. You have to go into the situation fresh, but still almost with the scientific method of trying to solve the problem as a football theorist. Yeah, yeah. You can't That is the, the basic new... of it. Yeah, you can't, you can't be like, oh, I'm going to just use this in here. Yeah, it may work, but then it may not work. You know yeah, what we I mean? need to I find you. the next yeah. Michael Jordan. No, it's like not that concept. Exactly. You always it's, have to something's new. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it, it just depends on the situation because it's not going to apply. Like, oh, I can use the same methodologies I used at TCU, but you were solving a different problem there. Mm-hmm. Right. I you just, I, mean? I just feel like, and I, again, I'm not saying Gary Patterson's bad with scheme. I'm not saying that. I just feel like. His being on the cutting edge has been more personnel. I, I don't disagree with that. No, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And that can and, help you in recruiting and help you if you need yeah. that. And can guy. he can he take you know if PK is looking for edge guys, can he take two edge guys and crunch the tape and look at measurables and look at body types and say no 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 you don't want this guy you you want this guy I think this guy's physically tapped out you, you're gonna trust me two three years down the road you'll thank me no you I agree guy. that that would help if that's his expertise that'd be awesome. Um because I think if you just infuse talent and upgrade all around, then yes, the defensive scheme will be better. But that scheme is is fractured. There's a. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. That, that, I'm, I've been watching that film. That that scheme. It's it's something's wrong with it, right? It's it's yeah. It's, yeah it's flawed. Overall. Clearly. Yeah, so I'm just saying the, the, the coverages do not sync up with the front. They got to figure that out. And he had that when he had PK and Jimmy Lake. Can Gary Patterson be that? If not, you need to find that. Because if not, yeah. you're going to get eaten alive again. Because like I said, it wasn't just guys who just can't play and can't win. Also, schematically, it, it was insufficient. The other thing that intrigues me about Gary Patterson, what have we always said? I, I've always said the barometer for quarterbacks in this league, in the Big 12. When you get to the point where you've got enough tape, you got let's say you've got two, three, four games, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and then you go against the Gary Patterson defense, what do you do the first time you see Gary Patterson? Because there's been nobody better in this league than taking young quarterbacks and humbling them the first time they get a taste of his defense. Yeah, no, I like that. And if I was if I was Sark, because I like your idea about just having him as a sounding board, right, because of his experience. Like, we don't I, really know what Ernie Adams did for Bill Belichick, but I'm assuming that He's obviously valuable, a yeah. valuable piece. We just don't know exactly what it is. And maybe that's the whole thing with Gary Patterson. We're never going to know exactly what he does, but he's going to be a valuable piece. If I'm Sark, I need Gary Patterson to help him out. Obviously, he's got to help out the defense, but if he's truly going to be a special assistant, if I'm Sark, I need to get Gary Patterson to help me with my anticipation of adjustments. Sark is terrible at it. And I mean terrible because I, I, I think he's good at what he does, but he's terrible at anticipating the adjustments of the opponent. And what would you ba- do if ba- Basically, you need to sit down at one point and figure out, okay, what if they stop this? What if they are able to neutralize my concept, my players? What is my next step? What's my adjustment? He didn't have that. When you have really this look, didn't have what are you thinking? Yeah, Basically, go so, through the game, offensive game plan and be like, should, when I show this, what's your first Yeah, thought? you should. So you need Gary Patterson to almost kind of reverse engineer your game plans at times. And you need to fit, You need to be anticipating adjustments by your opponents. And then maybe you'll get them, but maybe you're not. But if you hit and you go, oh, I knew he was going to bring the safety down into this position. Let's go. We're already prepared. Because for he's, he's seen enough of like, a Brent Venables defense, yeah. and he knows Mike Gundy exactly. well enough. And and I, I know it's, it's I know part of the reason why Gary Patterson took this job is to help Texas get ready for the SEC. But Texas finishing strong and competing in the Big Twelve is that's what's right in front of this program. Right Amen, now. brother. 
and nobody knows this league should know this league better than Gary Patterson. I'm with you. Yeah. And Sark needs a little help with that, too. Be like, hey, when you get Matt Campbell in this situation, this is how you need to approach it. Because this is how he's going to approach it. Yep. Totally agree. That is, that's valuable right now. This there. situation where he wants to play four-minute offense, this is what he's going to do. You need to attack here, 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 blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. That's kind of what I would want for him, other than fixing the defensive issues to help Sark out, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, how many Texas football podcasts have referenced Ernie Adams as much as we have? No, but you've done it many times before. I'm fascinated by that guy, man. I'm waiting. That's the guy. People are like, oh, I can't wait till somebody has a book. When Ernie Adams writes a book, if he ever does, I I would be first in line at Barnes & Noble getting that thing when it came out. Belichick would never have entrusted him. Uh, up until this point, if he guy was that kind of guy, I that's a thing. He's gonna be the guy that's gonna write a book. Bill Belichick wouldn't trust that guy. That might be Bill Belichick's <laughs> retirement project to be the author of that as a historian. But yes, he could. Yeah, that everybody would, be. would buy it. It would be probably one of the best-selling books in football would history. It, would it if Belichick works there, though. Would Ernie it doesn't the write the Bill that. Walsh book. Is like the it would it would come it would become one of the Bibles. Book. Yeah, it would. I agree with that. If he if he wrote a book about his championships and basically the whole entire like the blueprint. How he solved the problems, everything, all the inside info, we would do it, but he never will. Guys, he's not gonna do that. That's one you know, that's one of my, my life goals is to find find a hard, a physical copy of the Bill Walsh book, find the one edge and read that thing. You can, but it's probably gonna be used and abused and it costs a ton. Yeah, four hundred bucks. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was gonna say if I want to go drop five hundred dollars yeah. on one on Amazon right now. Probably. And most people who who are, who got them right now and they're football theorists like us, they don't they don't give them up. No. No. It is the football textbook. Yeah. We'll see if, uh, I don't know, the next chapter of Texas football under Steve Sarkeesian well, is better. Well, that's one. Chapter one. There you go. That's Sarkeesian's got a copy. He's a, he's a West Coast guy, Bill Walsh. Should have made that a point. Used yeah. on eBay, 450 right now. <laughs> oh, fit it. It's more of a collector's item. Bill than Walsh is, God bless that man. Yeah. I'll uh might have to look into that. I'll, I'll, I might next ask time. Ask Sark that. Ask Sark these guys. Ask Sark about it. Sark might have a copy. I'm telling you, I, I bet he will. Or at least he knows of someone who does. Yeah. Should be a should be a reference section in the football office. Mm-hmm. And the sit down and have Sark read pages out of it. Maybe <laughs> like a little kid and the teacher. <laughs> Matt, thanks for everything, man. You're more than welcome. Rod, be appreciate the time and the knowledge. Anytime, brother. Anytime. For Matt, for Rod, for everybody at the Austin Radio Network and the Horn 1049-1019 AM1260, streaming on the Horn app and at hornfm.com, where you can hear Rod B on RBKD each and every weekday from 3 to 7. You can also get myself and Craig Way each and every weekday on Light the Tower from 10 to noon. And thanks to Matt, you can find all of our archives, our classic interviews and shows are available on the Longhorn Blitz SoundCloud page. Yep, just type in Longhorn Blitz. Don't forget to search Horns 24-7 anywhere you get your podcast. Click that follow button. Get every episode of the flagship State of Recruiting and Longhorn Blitz. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. For the Horn family, for the Horns 24-7 family, I am Jeff Howe. Thank you so much for downloading and listening, and we will catch you again on the next episode. You've been listening to Longhorn Blitz with Horns247.com. Remember, for the latest Longhorn news 24-7, visit Horns247.com.